morning, everyone. If you would, please turn your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes. Now, I know what you're thinking. Pastor, this is a new year. It's supposed to be exciting. And you say, turn to the book of Ecclesiastes? Ecclesiastes. This morning, we will be looking at verses 1 through 3 in chapter 1. And we will be working through the book of Ecclesiastes until we finish it. Until we finish it. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Let's go to the Lord. Let me, uh, let me read Ecclesiastes 1. Ecclesiastes 1, verses 1 through 3. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, this morning we give you praise. We thank you for your word, which you have given us in holy script. We thank you for the songs that we sung to give Jesus Christ praise and glory and our great God, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, we pray that as we hear your word that you would give us ears to hear and a heart that desires to apply what we hear. We love you, Lord, and thank you for this day. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Ecclesiastes chapter one, verses one through three. It was uh, St. Augustine who said the following, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. This is the sentiment of every person born in Adam. Every person knows intrinsically that there is a God, that there is a creator, that there is one who is greater than themselves. And because of that, their hearts long to find rest. And what we see take place in our day, and this isn't common to our day alone, but since the fall of man, is man trying to fill in that gap, man trying to find rest for his soul, man trying to find peace with his creator, and sometimes that peace is found through substances. Sometimes it's found through entertainment and you fill in the gap. But there's always something that is vying for this peace, for this rest that man is searching for. And this was the sentiment of Augustine here in this quote. And this is the sentiment of the writer of Ecclesiastes. He's writing, we're told in verse one that he's a preacher and he's the son of David, king in Jerusalem. And so as a preacher, he is not only a collector of truth, but he is a conveyor of truth. He's gathering truth. And in this case, he's gathered truth. And now he's conveying it. He's communicating it to his readers. And we see that as often is the case, most preachers are not heard. Right? Most preachers are not heard. In one ear, out the other. And we see that tested throughout history. You see men like Whitfield and men like Wesley preaching 
and men would not hear. Although there are many that do hear, as wisdom cries aloud in the streets, many people just walk on by. They don't take heed to the voice of wisdom. And so we see the writer of the book of Ecclesiastes is preaching, he's writing, he's speaking, he's gathering information, and he is conveying it to his listeners. And what is the message that he conveys? Well, the message that he conveys is this, vanity of vanities, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. The writer of Ecclesiastes wants to remind his readers that apart from God, all is vanity. Apart from God, all is vanity. Now, who is the writer of Ecclesiastes? Hot button topic, much debated, but we've got to settle on something, or do we? I'll let you decide that, but I'll give you who I think the writer is. I think the writer of the book of Ecclesiastes is Solomon. Now, why do I say that? I say that because of verse one, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Now, you can read commentary upon commentary and people philosophizing about whether or not it's Solomon and why it couldn't be Solomon. And I don't want to bore you with all the behind the scenes stuff. If you want resources to read on it, by all means, have at it. Uh, but, but we're going to settle on the fact that this is Solomon who wrote it. Now, why do people argue about whether this is Solomon? Well, number one, it doesn't say that Solomon wrote it. It doesn't say his name. He doesn't say that he is the author of this. And so people are congesting or not putting things together and they're uh, you know, saying that here, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Well, that fits Solomon. He was the son of David and he was king of Jerusalem. And then we see another indication here of this person named Quileth. Well, who's that? Well, the word just means a gatherer, someone who is gathering information, is a preacher, someone who is communicating God's truth. And so we see that this person who is writing this book is one who has been chosen by God to write this book. This is inspired scripture. Now, the reason why I need to upload that in the front is because there's some things in this book that seem very confusing. There seems to be things that he's saying on one end of the spectrum, and then there's like a, a complete opposite of that in the next verse or sometimes in the same verse. And why is that? Is it a contradiction? Can we trust the Bible? Yes, we can try, trust the Bible. No, there's no contradictions. So why does it seem so confusing at times? Because life is confusing at times. Because not everything is peaches and cream. Because not everything is black and white. Because not everything is as clear and as smooth as we would like it to be. And that is exactly why. And so the writer is writing and he's saying that apart from God, apart from Christ, all of life is vanity. And he's going to go through categories to fill in the gaps to say, yes, even that and that and that and that all of it is vanity apart from God. All of it. And so Solomon writing is one who has experienced. He has tasted and seen that the world is bitter. And he wants his readers to know the same. Now it is believed that Solomon wrote this in his old age. The Song of Songs, written in his youth. The Book of Proverbs, written in his middle years. And the Book of Ecclesiastes is believed to be written in his older age. Which makes sense, right? 
you, you grow up a little and you learn. And you see that all the things that you did as you looked back, that they were vanity. That they were, as Paul says in the book of Philippians, dung. That they were nothing in and of themselves. And so Solomon is experienced. He knows all that life had to offer. And he can evaluate his actions objectively. And he was rich enough to be able to test all the finer things of life. He was a king and he was David's son. And so he had royal blood in him. And he was a magistrate, which means he had authority. And which means that he had an authority over him. And so he speaks from experience. He speaks as one who has tasted these things. And so what is the purpose of the book of Ecclesiastes as we work through this book? Well, the purpose is to show its readers that without God, life is full of vanity, worthlessness. And we'll look at that more in a second. All the pursuits in life apart from God at the center of it all lead to emptiness. Apart from God, man can never find true enjoyment in life, no matter what road he chooses to go down. Man, apart from God, can look at his neighbor, go down the wrong road, and say, I'm going to learn not to go down that road, and I'll go down this road, only to find out that even that road is vanity without God. And Solomon will go on to tell us that true enjoyment in this life cannot be found in wisdom, in money, in fame, in pleasure, or any other pursuit that is not connected to its creator. The Confession of Faith says, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. The very purpose, the very reason why you and I were created was to enjoy God, was to glorify God. And pursuing anything apart from that chief end will result in worthlessness. Charles Bridges in his commentary says, Beggars are we with all the riches of the Indies without him. He is the substitute for everything. Nothing can be a substitute for him. The world is full of graspers, and alas, they grasp in vain. They only draw in air. They know not where the true substance lies. In him, the supreme good and satisfying portion, in his service, no hard and gloomy exercise, but full of liberty and joy. And what is he saying? That the world is pursuing and grasping. They're chasing after the wind. And as they try to grasp what they pursue, they find that their hands are empty. They're rich in their own eyes, but they're beggars in reality. And only in God, only in Christ, do we find the full riches and full liberty and full joy that is ours in him. The book of Ecclesiastes shows us that there is no happiness in life apart from God. In writing this book, Solomon's goal is not to encourage his readers to go follow his steps in pursuing a life of vanity. He's trying to discourage his readers from pursuing that lifestyle. He's wanting to remind them that these are dead ends. And we see this at the end of the book. If you would, very briefly, go to Ecclesiastes 12. Ecclesiastes 12, verse 12. This is how he closes the book. So he, he starts it off. This is like a book bookend. He starts it off saying, 
Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And then if you look at the end of the book, he says, verse 13, we can look at. He says, the end of the matter. So this is it. This is the conclusion of it all. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Do you want to know what the purpose of your life is? Do you want to know why you're here? It is to fear God and keep his commandments. That's what God wants you to do. Every day, in every area of your life, he wants you to fear him and he wants you to keep his commandments. And one day you will stand before him to give an account for it all. And so... This is the purpose of the book. Warren Wearsby says in his writing, Solomon sought out the best words to arrange them in the best order. As he wrote, he included goads to prod us in our thinking and nails on which to hang some practical conclusions. And so what do we learn from this? Happiness apart from God is fleeting. It is circumstantial. And it is vanity. So let's listen to the words of the preacher. Look at verses 2 and 3. Vanity of vanity, says the preachers. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Vanity of vanities. Notice verse 2. The phrase is repeated five times. This is a, an alarm system. Wake up. Vanity of vanities. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. This is a Hebraic way of saying, pay attention. Zero in. This is all vanity. It's all worthless. It's all but a breath. And then he follows it up in verse 3 by using this word toil. He uses that two times in one verse. What does it what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? And this is going to be a key phrase throughout the book. And so we see in verse 1, the preacher gives his credentials. He is the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Verse 2, he gives us the conclusion of life under the sun. All is vanity. And in verse 3, he asks his readers a pressing question that he wants them to consider. And this is important. Anytime we see a question mark... We should contemplate on what is being asked. And so what is the question he wants them to consider? What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? And so will the readers hear the preacher's voice or will they say, this fool, he doesn't know about the finer things in life. He doesn't know about the joy and the happiness there is in this or in that only to find out that the preacher indeed knows because the preacher is the son of Adam. He's born into this world as sinner, separated from God. And all of us have our pursuits. All of us have our things that we grasped after prior to Christ. And so the preacher is crying out. He's saying, trust me, you're seeking happiness in all the wrong places. You will never be satisfied. You will never find true joy in these pursuits. You will always be chasing after the wind. Life under the sun is fleeting apart from God. And so will the people hear the voice of God's spokesman? They didn't hear the voice of God's prophets in the Old Testament. You remember the parable where 
the master sends messengers, and what do they do? They kill them. And then what happens? The master says, I'll send my son. Surely they'll listen to him. And what do they do? They kill the son. This is what foolishness does. This is what our sinful nature does. It rejects the truth. It wants vanity. And because we were created by God and for God, our greatest delight can only be found in him. And Paul said it this way, in him we move and breathe and have our being. Everything, everything we do, we do in him for the glory of him, to the praise of him, because he is our being. The fallenness of this world and our own sinful desires cause us to pursue things rather than the creator. These pleasures are short-lived. When our satisfaction and happiness are rooted and motivated by the created rather than the creator, we will be left empty because all things were created to be enjoyed in him and not apart from him. The sinfulness of this world and all its pleasures should cause us to long for true satisfaction in the creator. You remember the woman who, who was an adulterer says, she loves much because she has sinned much. You see, she's tasted and seen that the world was vanity, that the life that she pursued was worthless, that it was empty, that it was chasing after the wind. And what did she do as a result of that? She loved her master all the more. And this is what it happens to us when we come to faith in Christ. We lived a life that was unpleasing to God, maybe not outwardly, but inwardly in our own hearts. We were liars. We were thieves, right? We did all these things by nature because we were in Adam. We're separated from God. We've missed the target. We've missed the mark. Even the very best that we do falls short of the glory of God. And then God saves us. He gives us a new heart. He changes our affections and our desires. And now we want to live for him and please him. And when we sin, we hate it. We loathe it. And so we see the preacher asks his readers a question. In light of this vanity of vanities, this breath, this vapor, he asks a question in verse 3. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? In other words, what profit is there in any labor of man or any happiness on earth if his end will be found only in this life. The word toil here is important. It's not only important in this section of scripture, but we really see this back in Genesis. And I want you to see this very briefly. Go back to Genesis 3. This is a major theme we see right at the beginning. The fall of man. You remember... God gives Adam and Eve a command not to partake of the tree in the midst of the garden. And they do. They're deceived. Eve is deceived by the serpent. And the husband acquiesces to his wife and partakes of the fruit. And now God is going to curse the serpent. And then there's going to be repercussions for man, for Adam. And we know this, that Adam are all of us. And so we see this in verse 15. 
I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. We spent a lot of time talking about that throughout the Christmas season. Speaking of Christ, who is the one to come, who will bruise, who will crush the head of the serpent. But look at verses 16 and following. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth your children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Verse 17, and to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have not and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat it. You shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth for you and you shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground for out of it you were taken for you are dust and dust you shall return and so we see when the preacher here says toil will be the case that is the result of the fall this toil this work this trouble this misery this unpleasantness this distressing experience all of that is a result of the fall and every person is a partaker of it. And so the preacher wants his readers to consider a life that goes beyond the material realm. The material realm. Notice what he says. What does man gain in all the toil at which he toils under the sun? You see that? This phrase, under the sun, is literally everything under the sun. The material world. The, the, the tangible, the things... The, the realm that you and I are living in. What gain is there in all your toil, all your efforts, all your work? Now remember, prior to the fall, there was no toil. There was work, but there wasn't work that was taxing. There was pleasure. Would you imagine that one day? There'll be work that will be pleasurable and not, you know, we, we work now and it's pleasurable, but there will be work that is pleasurable in a way that won't be a reflection of the fall. That we'll be toiling and rejoicing in our toil. And, and we see that there's even that now, and this is taking us and rem, or this is reminding us of our mortality, right? You work hard to pay the bills. You get food for the house and your children, and they grow up and what used to be $100 worth of groceries now feeds no one in the house because they're growing. And so we see the blessings, but also we see the curses of the fall. But here the preacher wants his readers to consider that life, a life that goes beyond the material realm. So what does he say? Under the sun, there is sin and brokenness. Under the sun, the creation groans and longs for redemption. The preacher knows the emptiness of this life apart from God. And his conclusion is that it is vanity. In other words, a life without God is a life that is a mist. It is a vapor. It is a mere breath. It is fleeting. It is elusive. That is life. And we'll get into this. You work hard. You study long. And someone else gets the raise. Vanity. You try your hardest to lose that weight, and you can't. Vanity. 
You have children, and they're a blessing. And then something happens, and they die. Vanity. It's chasing after the wind. You have great health today, and tomorrow you're sick. Vanity. You have all your friends, and they love you, and you do something wrong, and they don't want to have anything to do with you. Vanity. Vanity. What would Jesus say? Well, this is what he said. What does it profit a man if he gains the world and he loses his soul? There are men grasping and chasing after the wind, and they're running headlong into the fires of hell. Speedily. Because you imagine the image. This is the pits. This is eternal damnation, separation from God for eternity. And they're running and they're grasping and they're chasing and they fall over and they're dead. But not only in this life, but for eternity. Vanity. That's what happened in the preacher's life. He gained the world and somewhere along the way, it clicked. It clicked. This has been the echoing cry of every preacher that has caught a glimpse of life beyond the sun. If we are going to have eternal happiness, if you're going to have eternal joy and peace, if you're going to be right with God, there must be a joy and a peace and a satisfaction that transcends life under the sun. And how? How can we, as mortals, have life beyond the sun? It's impossible. How can we reach the heavens? And even if we could, what would we say? Who would we speak to? We're dead by nature. We're separated from God. Our desires aren't meant, aren't bent toward obeying God. And even if we name it God, even if we name it Christianity, and we're not truly in Christ, then we've created an alternate way to come to him. And so you can be gay and Christian. You can do all these sorts of things that are just good enough from the eyes of your neighbor, but not perfectly righteous in the sight of God. And my friends, that's exactly what we need. We need a righteousness that transcends ours because we have none. We are sinners. And so how? How can we reach beyond the sun? This is all we know. This is all we know. This is all we know. Our eyes cannot see beyond this earth. We cannot even look at the sun long enough before closing our eyes. My friends, the answer is Christ. Christ. God sent his son from heaven to earth. He came down to humanity to live a life that we could never live. The transcendent one came and broke through life beyond the sun and came to life under the sun and lived a perfect life that we could never live. The eternal word of God has entered the material world. And in doing so, he has provided salvation for humanity in himself. 
and he gives sinners who trust in him hope in this present life. And that hope is only found in Christ. He saves the sinner's soul and he gives him purpose and mission to live on this side of eternity. He isn't saying, well, life is just worthless. I used to read this book and think to myself, man, I'm staying away from the book of Ecclesiastes. I want to be encouraged. Well, one, how selfish of me. I just want to be, I, I, I want. God, speak to me about something that's good for me. And he's saying, I am. I am. So he's not saying it's not good to have a job because it's worthless. Right? Don't, don't think that way. This is how sometimes the cults do this. Well, Jesus is coming back any minute, so don't work, don't save. In fact, instead of doing all those things, just give it to us. We know what to do with it. And so we see he isn't saying that. What he's saying is a life apart from God in all of these areas is vanity. A life apart from God. In Christ, the work that we do, the food that we eat, the things of this world are not empty or meaningless, but they have eternal significance. I'll give you a classic verse, Timothy, right? What does it, uh, uh, what do you say? Bodily exercise profit a little. You know, and if you're on the side of not wanting to exercise. You say, see, why do I need to exercise? It profits little. It's not what he's saying. He says, bodily exercise profits, but it's little in comparison to godliness. And so what if you're strong and you're in shape and you're fit and you live to be 100 years old, but you're like the devil? Oh, but if you're fit you eat right, and you live a life that seeks to honor God even in the food that you eat and the way you move your body, that's a good thing, and you're godly. Praise God. Those are good things. And so Solomon is saying all of it. Paul would later echo this. Whether you eat, whether you drink, or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. You were created for God, by God. All of it is unto him. And so the only peace and joy and satisfaction and contentment that will ever be had in this life can only be had through Christ. He offers himself in his life and in his death and in his resurrection. If you want to live a life for the glory of God now and in the life to come, then you must look away from yourself and look to him. You must die to yourself by trusting in the only true and living God who created you to worship and enjoy him forever. And we see then the history of redemption shows us that Christ is the only one that can relieve humanity from the burden of sin. And so the preacher says, take heed to the words that I am saying. Look to the one who is greater than me. You remember, this is Matthew 11. He says that there's one greater than Solomon here. Yes, Solomon was a great king. And what was the purpose of all that? All of that was a foreshadow of the greatness of the one to come who was greater than Solomon. Solomon's wisdom was immaculate. 
Christ. Christ was Solomon's true wisdom and savior. He was the one who would give him purpose and everlasting identity that transcended the material world. And so, if you are in Christ, what is the application? Enjoy your life under the sun. Enjoy life. You think of today, today's the Lord's day. What are we called to do? We're called to rest. Why? Because Christ rose from the grave. It is finished. So rest. And, and, and I don't just mean physical. I mean spiritual as well. Say, I don't know if God loves me. I don't know that, that. And all these thoughts come to my message. Just rest and look to Christ. Rest. And so we see that because of Christ, we can enjoy him forever. And so all the joys and sorrows you face in this world can never take away the true treasure and ultimate possession you have in Christ. Because you're in Christ, all things, the good, the bad, and the ugly, are working together for your good and for his glory. And all this is possible because you live life under the sun with the reality that transcends this life. Now you can enjoy all the days of your life because in Christ, all things are yours. And so this morning, have you found that rest for your soul? Have you trusted in the one who transcends life under the sun? Or are you still grasping and chasing and pursuing the wind? Because the preacher would say, vanity, vanity, vanity of vanities. All your pursuit apart from Christ is vanity. And if you're in him, enjoy your life knowing that you live because he lives. We're going to sing that song here at the end after prayer and communion. Let that be your prayer today. Why do you live? Why do I live? Because he lives. How is it that I can get through this day? I'm struggling. My mind, my heart, my emotions. Why? Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. You see, the Christian life is not looking inward. It's looking upward. And it's not looking upward to detach yourself from reality. It's looking upward to live truly in reality. And so in closing, for those of you who are in Christ, in him we move and we breathe and we have our being. And so with that said, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, today we come to you again with thanksgiving and praise. We thank you for this sobering word that you've given us through the book of Ecclesiastes. And we thank you for the great encouragement that we have in it for those who are in Christ, how the former pursuits and desires we had have now been replaced with a greater joy and a greater pursuit. We thank you, Lord, that now in Christ, in all our pursuits on earth, we see the true significance of them. And whatever we do, whether we eat, whether we drink, we're to bring glory to you. And so we pray, God, that you would 
point out areas of our lives in which we are not honoring you as we ought to and that you would bring us to confession of sin and honor you in those areas of our lives, knowing that you care, that your name be glorified. And we thank you for your Holy Spirit that strengthens us and enables us to live a life of holiness before God. We thank you, Lord, that we are not right with you on the basis of any efforts of our own, but solely on the work of Christ. And so we come to you as needy people, Lord, with our hands open, receiving the good gifts that you give us. And we thank you even this morning, God, as we are reminded in the cup and the bread that you have done so. You have given the greatest gift, which is yourself, and you have given it to us here as a remembrance. As we partake of the cup and the bread, these are signposts. These are reminders of your great covenant love toward us, that you will never leave us or forsake us, that you will continue to do the work that you started in us and you will complete it. And so we pray as we partake that we would be a celebratory people, that we would rejoice that nothing on this side of eternity is in vain in Christ. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.